Chapter One, Part Seven of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume One, by John Bagnell Bury. Chapter One, Part Seven The Dorian Conquest. The heroic age of Greece may be said to have come to an end within two generations after the Trojan War. A dark period of about two centuries followed, which were marked by the disappearance of the old civilization, by the expansion of the Greek race over the Aegean, and by wide political changes in the mother country. The transition to the new period corresponds to the transition from the bronze to the iron age. The old Aegean fashions of pottery are replaced by a style distinguished by geometrical decorations, and hence in the history of art the geometric age is often used as a convenient designation. The pressure of Illyrian peoples across the northern frontiers of Greece seems to have been the principal cause of the changes. The Dorians, who appear upon the scene and play the leading part in transforming Greece, were probably of Illyrian stock. Unlike the earlier northern invaders, the Achaeans, they destroyed instead of adopting the civilization which they found. The Dorians did not come with horses, they fought on foot, and their weapons were iron. The southward pressure of the Illyrians was fatal to Aetolia. In the Homeric poems we have a reflected glimpse of the prosperity of the Aetolian coastland. We see that Pleuron by the sea and rocky Caledon and the other strong cities of that region were abreast of the civilization of the heroic age, and the Aetolian myth of Malagar and the hunting of the Caledonian bear became a part of the heritage of the national legend of Greece. Maritime Aetolia was then a land of wine. Its pride in its vineyards is displayed in the names of its mythic kings. But in the later ages of Greek history all this is changed. We find Aetolia regarded as a half-barbarous country, the abode of men who speak indeed a Greek tongue, but have lagged ages and ages behind the rest of Greece in science and civilization. And we find the neighboring countries in the same case. Epirius, or the greater part of it, had been Hellenized when the worship of Zeus was introduced at Dodona, to become famous and venerable throughout the Greek world. Suddenly it lapses into comparative barbarism, and the sanctuary of Dodona remains a lonely outpost. The explanation of this falling away is the eruption and conquest of Illyrian invaders. It was not through laziness or degeneracy, or through geographical disadvantages, that the Greeks of Epirus and Aetolia fell out of the race. It was because they were overwhelmed by a rude and barbarous people, who swamped their civilization instead of assimilating it. The Aetolians and Epirots of later history are mainly of Illyrian stock. This invasion naturally drove some of the Greek inhabitants to seek new homes elsewhere. It was easy to cross the gulf, and Aetolian immigrants made their way to the river Peneus, where they settled and took to themselves the name of Ilians or Dalesmen. They won dominion over the Epeans, the first Greek settlers, and gradually extended their power to the Alpheus. Their land was a tract of downs with a harborless coast, and they never became a maritime power. The people in this western plain of the peninsula were distinguished by the veneration of the hero Pelops. His worship had taken deep root at Pisa on the banks of the river Alpheus. It was a spot which in a later age, when the Greeks had spread overseas into distant lands, was to become one of the holiest seats of Greek religion, where the greatest of the Arian, the supremest of the Hellenic, 
gods was to draw to his sacred precinct men from all quarters of the Greek world to do him honor with the sacrifices and games. But even when Pisa had come to be illustrious as Olympia, even when the temple and altar of the Olympian Zeus had eclipsed all other associations of the place, Pelops still received his offering. But, though Pelops himself was remembered only as a legendary figure, except in one or two places like Olympia, where his old worship survived, his name is living still in one of the most familiar geographical names of Greece. It is in the regions near the mouth of the Corinthian Gulf, where the existence of the bridge at Corinth may be easily unremembered, that men would be most tempted to call the great peninsula an island. And so, when Pelops was still widely worshipped, the name Island of Pelops may have originated on that side, not probably in the peninsula itself, but on the opposite shores, in Atolia, for example, and then it made its way into universal use, and clung henceforward to southern Greece. The pressure of the Illyrians in Epirus may be associated with two movements of great consequence, the Thessalonian and the Boeotian migration. A backward Greek folk named the Petholoi, but called by men of the other districts Thessaloi, crossed the hills and settled in the western corner of the land which is bounded by Pelion and Pindus. They gained the upper hand and spread their sway over the whole plain. They drove the Achaeans southwards into the mountains of Pythia, and henceforward these Achaeans play no part of any note in the history of Greece. The Thessalian name soon spread over the whole country, which is called Thessaly to the present day. Cranon, Pagasse, Larisse, and Phare became the seats of lords who reared horses and governed the surrounding districts. The conquered people were reduced to serfdom and were known as the laborers. They cultivated the soil, at their own risk, paying a fixed amount to their lords, and they had certain privileges. They could not be sold abroad or arbitrarily put to death. But they gained one victory over their conquerors. The Achaean language prevailed. The Thessalians gave up their own idiom and learned, not indeed without modifying, the speech of their subjects, so that the dialect of historic Thessaly bears a close resemblance to the tongue which we find spoken by the Achaean settlers in Asia Minor. When they had established themselves in the lands of the Peneus, the Thessalians pressed northward against the Pherebi, eastward against the Magnets, and southward against the Achaeans of Pythia, and reduced them all to tributary subjection. We know almost nothing of the history of the Thessalian kingdoms. In later times we find the whole country divided into four great divisions, Thessaloitus in the southwest, the quarter which may have been the first settlement and home of the Thessalian invaders, Pythioitus of the Achaeans in the south, Pelasgoitus, a name which records the survival of the Pelasgaeans, one of the older peoples, and Histioitus, the land of the Histaeans, who have no separate identity in history. All the lordships of the land were combined in a very loose political organization, which lay dormant in times of peace, but through which, to meet any emergency of war, they could elect a common captain, with the title of Tegos. But all the folk did not remain to fall under the thraldom imposed by the new lords. A portion of the Achaeans migrated southward to the Peloponnesus, and founded settlements along the strip of coast which forms the southern side of the Corinthian Gulf and was henceforth called Achaia. Thus there were two Achaean lands, the old Achaia in the north, now shrunk to the mountains of Pythia, and the new Achaia in the south. There was also apparently a movement to Euboea, in consequence of the Thessalian invasion. According to tradition, 
Histea in the north of the island and Eritrea in the centre owed their origin to settlers from Thessaly, and there is independent evidence that there was truth in this tradition. The lands of Helicon and Catheron experienced a similar shock to that which unsettled and changed the lands of Olympus and Othrys, but the results were not the same. The old home of the Boeotians was in Mount Boan in Epirus, the mountain gave them their name. Their dialect was probably closely akin to the original dialect of the Thessalians, being marked by certain characters which enable us to distinguish roughly a northwestern group of dialects from those spoken by the earliest invaders of Greece. Coming from the west or north, the Boeotians first occupied places in the west of the land which they were to make their own. From Cheronia and Coronia they won Thebes, the city of the Cadmians. Thence they sought to spread their power over the whole land. They spread their name over it, for it was called Boeotia, but they did not succeed in winning full domination as rapidly as the Thessalians succeeded in Thessaly. The rich lords of Orchomenus preserved their independence for hundreds of years, and it was not till the sixth century that anything like a Boeotian unity was established. The policy of the Boeotian conquerors, who were perhaps comparatively few in number, was unlike that of the Thessalians. The conquered communities were not reduced to serfdom. On the other hand, they did not, like the Thessalians, adopt or adapt the speech of the older inhabitants, but the idioms of the conquerors and conquered coalesced and formed a new Boeotian dialect. The Boeotian conquest, there can be little doubt, caused some of the older peoples to wander forth to other lands, and it may explain the participation of the Cadmians and the men of Labadea and others in some of the Ionian settlements in Asia Minor. Moreover, the coming of the Boeotians probably unsettled some of the neighboring peoples and drove them to change their abodes. West of Boeotia, in the land of the Phocians, amid the regions of Mount Parnassus, there were dislocations of a less simple kind. Hither came the Dorians. For a while, it would seem, a large space of mountainous country between Mount Ota and the Corinthian Gulf, including a great part of Phocis, became Dorian land. The greater part of them soon went forth to seek fairer abodes in distant places, but a few remained behind in the small basin-like district between Mount Ota and Mount Parnassus, where they preserved the illustrious Dorian name throughout the course of Grecian history, in which they never played a part. It would seem that the Dorians also took possession of Delphi, the rocky threshold of Apollo, and planted some families there who devoted themselves to the service of the god. After the departure of the Dorian wanderers, the Phocians could breathe again, but Doris was lost to them, and Delphi, which, as we shall see, they often essayed to recover. And the Phocians had to reckon with other neighbors. In later times we found the Locrians split up into three divisions, and the Phocians wedged in between. One division, the Ozolian Locrians, are on the Corinthian Gulf, to the west of Phocis. The other two divisions are on the Euboean Sea, to the northeast of Phocis. The Oslians were one of the most backward peoples of Greece. The Locrians of the north play a part in the Iliad, under the leadership of their hero, Ajax, who ruled over Thronian as well as over Opus, and Locris was probably a continuous strip along the coast of the Euboean Straits. The Phocians wanted an outlet to the sea, and severed it into two parts. The departure of the Dorians from the regions of Parnassus was probably gradual, and it was accomplished by sea. They built ships, perhaps the name of Napactus, the place of the shipbuilding, is a record of their ventures, and they sailed around the Peloponnesus to the southeastern parts of Greece. 
One band of adventurers brought a new element to Crete, the island of many races, others settled in Thera and Melos. Others sailed away eastward, beyond the limits of the Aegean, and found a home on the southern coast of Asia Minor, where, surrounded by barbarians and forgotten by the Greek world, they lived a life apart, taking no share in the history of Hellas. But they preserved their Hellenic speech, and their name, the Pamphylians, recorded their Dorian origin, being the name of one of the three tribes by which the Dorians were everywhere recognized. The next conquests of the Dorians were in the Peloponnesus. They had found it impossible to attack on the north and west. They now essayed it on the south and east. There were three distinct conquests, conquest of Laconia on the conquest of Argolis, the conquest of Corinth. The Dorians took possession of the rich vale of the Eurotas, and keeping their own Dorian stock pure from the mixture of alien blood, reduced all the inhabitants to the condition of subjects. It seems probable that the Dorian invaders who subdued Laconia were more numerous than the Dorian invaders elsewhere. The eminent quality which distinguished the Dorians from other branches of the Greek race was that which we call character, and it was in Laconia that this quality most fully displayed and developed itself, for here the Dorian seems to have remained more purely Dorian. In Argolis the course of things ran otherwise. The invaders, who landed under a king called Temenos, had doubtless a hard fight, but their conquest took the shape not of subjugation, but of amalgamation. The Argive state was indeed organized on the Dorian system, with the three Dorian tribes, the Hillites, the Pamphili, and the Daminis, but otherwise few traces of the conquest remained. It is to the time of this conquest that the overthrow of Mycenae is probably to be referred. Certain it is that both Mycenae and Tyrions were destroyed suddenly and set on fire. Henceforward Argos, under her lofty citadel, was to be undisputed queen of the Argive plain. Greater, indeed, was the feat which the Dorians wrought in their southern conquest, the feat of making lowly Sparta, without citadel or wall, the queen of the Laconian Vale. Dorian ships were also rowed up the Saronic Gulf. It was the adventure of a prince whom the legend calls Errant, the son of Ryder, and seized the high hill of Acrocorinth, the key of the peninsula. This was the making of Corinth. Here, as in Argolis, there was no subjection, no distinction between the conquerors and the conquered. The geographical position of Corinth between her seas determined for her people a career of commerce, and her history shows that the Dorians had the qualities of bold and skilful traders. From Argos the Dorians made two important settlements in the north, on the river Asopus, Sicyon on its lower, and Phileus on its upper banks. And beyond Mount Geronea another Dorian city arose, we know not how, on the commanding hill which looks down upon the western shore of Salamis. Its name was Nisa. But the hill had been crowned by a royal palace in the heroic age, and so the place came to be known Majara, the palace, and in historical times no other name was known, though the old name lurked in the name of the harmer Nisaea. In later days Dorian Majara was associated politically with the Peloponnesus, rather than with northern Greece. In pre-Dorian days it had been reckoned as part of Boeotia, separated though it was from that country by the western portion of the massive range of Catheron. The island, whose conical mountain in the midst of the Saronic waters is visible to all the coasts around, also was destined to become a Dorian land. Aegina was conquered by Dorian settlers from Epidaurus, 
but the conquest was perhaps not effected for two hundred years or more after the subjugation of Argolis. In Aegina, too, there was doubtless a fusion of the old inhabitants and the new settlers, and we may be sure that it had been before, as it was after, the change, an island of bold and adventurous sailors. In Crete and Laconia we meet, as we shall see, some peculiar institutions, which seem to have been characteristically Dorian, but are not found in Argos or Corinth. Yet all the Dorian settlements remembered their common Dorian origin, and the conquerors of Laconia, at least, looked with emotions of filial piety towards the little, obscure Doris in the highlands of Parnassus as their mother country. The evidence of the three Dorian tribes might help to maintain the consciousness of a Dorian section of Greece, but it was perhaps the rise of a new Doris, on the other side of the Aegean, that elevated the Dorian name into permanent national significance. End of chapter 1, part 7. Recording by Sibella Denton.